in the stormy seas, our food banks are having to lift people up into the boat. And it's still very stormy. And it's going to be stormy for a long time. Uh, but in that boat, there are people who are still saying, I can see land. And there's still hope there. And it's stormy right now, but we're going to get to a place where there's no need for food banks and that everyone has enough to live on. Welcome to Conversations, a tier fund in Northern Ireland podcast connecting you, the listener, to the wisdom and experience of the local and global church as together we seek God's kingdom come in the here and in the now. We're back for season two. My name is Chris Thompson and it's my privilege to work with Tearfund and to be one of your hosts for this podcast. Each month, we'll be joined by guests who will help us connect through conversation to both the local and the global. We'll touch on theology, on the church, on systems and structures, on hope in a world that's in crisis and a whole lot more. And we've got some truly wonderful guests lined up in the coming months. It's our hope that these conversations will not just encourage us, but might also help inform our practice, our mission here at home. This episode, we're kicking off with something a little bit closer to home. And to that end, we're joined by two wonderful guests. Johnny Curry is the Northern Ireland lead for the Trussell Trust, an anti-poverty charity that supports a network of food banks across the UK and also campaigns for an end to the need for food banks. There's 22 Trussell Trust food banks here in Northern Ireland. Johnny's also the joint chair of the YMCA in Ireland and an independent member of the Ars North Down PCSP, Policing and Community Safety Partnership, for those of you who don't know the acronym. Johnny lives in Edenards and is an active member of Movilla Abbey Church. Johnny, really great to have you on the podcast. And also with us is Glenn Mitchell. Glenn's the director of Tear Fund in Northern Ireland and has a background in church leadership. Glenn is from Bangor and oversees all of the work of Tear Fund here in Northern Ireland. Great to have you both on the podcast. Johnny, I know that you're a big Ards FC fan. Uh, tell us a bit about how they're doing this season. Hi, Chris. Well, Ards FC are still around, which is big enough for me. We <laughs> ground share with Bangor after having been homeless for over 20 years. So we have exciting plans in place to have our own ground in the town and we're comfortably mid-table so far in the second tier of the Irish League. So happy for still to be around. <laughs> Just surviving and being comfortably mid-table. Those are high bars to set for your team, Johnny. Great. And Glenn, um, thanks for joining us. You've been buzzing this last six months since Bangor was granted city status um, back in May. Are you still riding that high? Absolutely. It's uh, It's been a long time coming. So, yeah, we're very pleased here in Bangor to be a city. Is there any noticeable differences already at this stage? You just feel it in the air, the possibilities, the potential. <laughs> Okay, brilliant. I've just noticed that we've two guests from North Down, so we're going to have to work very hard at our next episode for some geographical diversity. Ards in North Down, Chris. Oh, pardon me. <laughs> Ards in North Down. Clock that, listeners. Okay, uh, let's let's get stuck in. Johnny, um, we're all really well aware of the impact of the cost of living in our own lives and as a society. Uh, we're recording this just at the end of September. 
the news is full of price caps, energy support, tax cuts, the pounds crashing, all of those sort of things are here in the news. Paint us a bit of a picture if you can. How do, how do those rising prices impact the poorest here in Northern Ireland? I guess the first thing that I would say is that in terms of Northern Ireland and food bank use, the cost of living, I suppose, hasn't just come up a lagging in a bubble. Um, it's been a long-term thing for us. Uh, we've seen the highest increases in food bank use in Northern Ireland um, at a much higher rate than the other parts of the UK since about 2015, 2016. So while we are now looking at probably what's going to be our busiest winter on record, there is a long tail to this in terms of long-term challenges in relation to poverty in Northern Ireland that haven't been addressed at a policy level. But something certainly that our food banks are seeing is increases across the board. So increases from households that are reliant on Social Security, where they're finding that that just isn't enough to meet the cost of essential items through the families that are working really hard day in, day out, and they're finding that their uh, their income isn't meeting their expenditure. So we are seeing for the first time folks that just are having to navigate crisis support for the first time, who just aren't used to entering a food bank, who, who say our food banks that we never thought we would be here. Um, and that plays out in a lot of very worrying ways in terms of stress, uh, anger, um, confusion and disbelief. So we are seeing as, as, as everybody's costs are going up, it's people that were already struggling are struggling even further. And it's a very difficult winter ahead. And Johnny, is there an anger out there? Are people frustrated when they see recent news about bankers' bonus caps and so on? And without getting into the detail of that, just as an example, is there a sense of frustration, a sense of injustice, maybe especially for those that don't feel that they should be there, that this is the first time? It's a good question. I think that folks who are having to navigate the really, really complex picture of how they make the money go farther is time consuming and stressful um, and exhausting enough. It's often you don't have time to think about all the injustices at the top until the very end. We are starting to see it um, and our food banks especially are, are incredibly tired after having just gone through a very, very demanding period responding to the pandemic. They're certainly very tired and very angry uh, because they see every day the impact of a failure in government policy um, and folks that seem incredibly powerless to be able to do anything about it. Thanks, Johnny. We'll, we'll talk a bit about policy later on. Lots of churches and communities have food banks and that's part of their response in their local community. And Talk us through Trussell Trust's, I guess, their approach and maybe particularly theologically. What's the theological underpinning for a church having a food bank? We have 22 food banks within the Northern Ireland network. Out of that 22... 20 of them are run or managed by churches, which I think might be the highest percentage across the network. I think it's fair to say that most Trussell Trust food banks do have some sort of connection to church. In terms of how a church approaches how they run a food bank, I can only speak for food banks within our network when I say this, but um, it's a lot of work. All the churches that run food banks within our network are incredibly compassionate people, are incredibly organised. And there's something about the Trussell Trust brand and our way of setting out all that you need to set out to run a food bank effectively certainly really appeals. Um, 
sort of foundational verse for Trussell Trust has been Matthew 25. I was hungry and you closed me and all the different variations of responding to need that that verse has, which is very much front and centre in all of the work that we do. Um, our work is founded on four foundational values of community, compassion, justice and of dignity. And we find the churches really respond very positively to that because it resonates with where they are in terms of what they see as an expression of God's love in their communities. Thanks, Johnny. Um, maybe in particular on the dignity challenge, I know at Tearfund and Glenn can jump in with this. We spend a lot of time thinking about our language, our practice to make sure that it, it honours and dignifies the individual or the family or the community that we're involved with. Uh, we talk, for example, we talk about people lifting themselves out of poverty uh, as opposed to being lifted out of poverty, just as an example. I guess locally, are there what are some of the theological challenges or the theological risks that come from a church being involved with their community in this way? I think that one of the risks when you're dealing with people on your doorstep, um, as opposed to necessarily hundreds of thousands of miles away, um, you can give money and not have to see people. <laughs> Whereas in a food bank context, when you're providing for people that live uh, on your doorstep, um, you have to show up in a meaningful way for people or they'll just see through you. And in terms of the challenges that our churches face in response to the closeness of the poverty that they're seeing, how to do that with dignity is incredibly difficult. Um, and it's difficult in terms of the power imbalances around the church that has the food and the person that needs it. And there's a wee bit of how, how can we challenge what feels good to us to be seen to be meeting need with um, actually it doesn't feel good at all for the person that has to come to you for the food. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, how do you ensure that the voices of lived experience um, inform and direct the work that you do as a food bank? And that's very difficult for a lot of churches, um, largely based on the class base that makes up a church. So there may be perceptions and myths around who uses food banks that need to be challenged. So for us, it's a constant learning process um, and a journey. I think that all of our food banks would say that they're going on because be able to, to end the need for food banks, which is what the Trussell Trust wants to do, you have to listen to the people that come and use your services because they will know the solutions better than us. Thanks, Johnny. Really, really insightful. Uh, Glenn, you're just back from Lebanon uh, this last month, visiting Tier Fund's partners there. Give us a wee bit of an insight, if you can, into the situation in Lebanon. Uh, and uh, I guess how that compares to our own. Yeah, thanks, Chris. Um, well, obviously, I'm not I'm not an expert in in Lebanon, but I did get a chance to visit a couple of our partners and and speak with them a little bit and listen a little bit about what what is the context that they're operating in and what does that look like for the church and how the church engages with poverty. So there's a few themes that came out whenever I was I was there, and some of them are quite similar to some of the challenges we face here. Um, you know, the first being the the real history of conflict and the ongoing conflict in the in the region, which at a high level is kind of between states, but even at a at a community level, um, we kind of saw this this context where um, people uh, would be saying, well, there's there's this other uh, other group that we don't speak to, we don't go into their areas because you know my uncle or my father or my grandfather was killed by them in the war, or there, there's this kind of <clears throat> uh, kind of ethnic religious tension between groups 
And so a lot of our partners and partner churches are dealing with issues around building peace, um, which is just kind of that grassroots community tension kind of levels. One of the projects we saw was a football team, a children's kind of football program, which is very simple and straightforward. But for them, it was about, well, how can we be a team that includes Lebanese, Syrians, Palestinians, Muslims, and Christians, uh, so that you know, if, if these young people can learn to play together, then they can learn to live together. And that was something I think was uh, was quite similar in some ways, some of the communities we have here. Um, one of the things they're dealing with as well in the country is massive influx of refugees to the extent that one in three people in Lebanon is, is a refugee, whether that's Palestinian, more from the south or uh, from Syria. And you can imagine the community tensions that that creates in any society if suddenly there's lots of people coming in who um, are the other, they're different, different background, and they're tra- you know fleeing from trauma and so on. I'm not always welcomed with open arms. Um, so one of the projects we visited was an education centre in the middle of a, of a settlement of primarily Syrian refugees. And a lot of the work they were doing was around um, basic needs, yes, food vouchers and so on, but also around trauma support and, uh, and around education as well. And, uh, you know, these children have come from these situations into a country where there's nothing for them, um, but an education is really vitally important. And then the other thing about Lebanon in the context was the economic crisis that that they're in. So, um, you know, currently, obviously, we have a very high inflation rate, you know, 10% or something like that um, here, and that's really causing people huge challenges. The inflation rate in Lebanon at the minute is about 170%. So if you were somebody who was in a, a, a kind of middle-class job, like a teacher or something like that, three, four, five years ago, you know, your salary was worth, you know, so much and you were able to to live on that. Now it's worth literally a fraction. Um, so they have a lot of people having to leave, a lot of young people having to leave Lebanon as economic migrants. And describing someone as an economic migrant can be, uh, there's a bit of stigma with that, but actually seeing it from that side, these people have to leave so that they can even send $100 a month back to their family in Lebanon to to kind of keep their head above water. Uh, and the other thing about the church there in Lebanon is very much a minority. And we've seen our recent census results and so on. How do we, how does the church operate as a minority? You have to work with people who are different. You have to be exposed to people who are different and, and try to work together towards some kind of common aims, uh, you know, particularly around alleviating poverty. So it's a great experience, a very, very challenging place to be working, but there's definitely things we can learn. Thanks, Glenn. I- Touching into what Johnny's helped us think about around dignity and the attention with that and the, the power balance uh, and all those things. From your experience of Tear Fund and, and your relationships with, with churches around the world, share with us a little bit about Tear Fund's approach to development and how we're doing our best to do aid and development in a way that honours and upholds the dignity of people. Yeah, sure. I mean, it, it ultimately starts with the theological piece where we believe that, you know, people are made in God's image. And no matter who they are, where they are, what their background is, they're made in God's image. They have inherent dignity and value and worth. And um, any any approach to help uh, has to start there that um, there's, you know, we, we are equal as, as human beings together. And, uh, and then recognising as well that there's a difference helping people who are in crisis, you know, so thinking of 
what we're seeing in Pakistan or places like that, where um, there's immediate need, which which is important, but you, you can't stay there. And a lot of our approach is about getting with communities who are maybe feeling that they're helpless, they're hopeless, and there's there's not there's nowhere they can go. And the churches get around them and say, open the scriptures together and say, look, well, you're made in God's image. You're made for for a purpose and a reason. And, you know, looking at Genesis, you know, you're made to keep and protect the garden that God has given you. So uh, so then the church is able to come alongside them and it'll change that mindset and say, well, look, actually, God has made you with agency and with the ability to uh, to work and so on and to give them a bit of a vision of what their community could look like and then to begin to give them the practical um, training and equipping them and how to actually do that. So it is very much, you know, echo what Johnny said, like like listening to people and saying, well, what is what are your needs here specifically? We're not going to come in with our agenda and say, right, what you need is to build a school or to do this or do that. To say, what are your needs and what do you have already here in your hands and how can we just support and equip you to, uh, to make the most out of that? Yeah, amazing. It's such a privilege to be one step closer to people's stories, whether that's Johnny and food banks here locally listening to the the voice of those that use a food bank or or what you've described, Glenn, about listening to the voice of those in communities that we we work in and with. It is such a privilege. I think that's maybe what I've said before in this podcast too, but one of the joys of Tear Fund is that closeness that you are able to listen really well and totally shapes your outlook and and how you view things like development. One of our hearts for this podcast is that we might learn uh, from from the global church and the local church together. Um, and so the question for both of you is, what, what do you think churches here can learn um, from some of the stuff you described, Glenn, in terms of how we engage with poverty on our doorstep? Yeah, I think... I think what I've seen is that there's a there's a really powerful dynamic that happens whenever the church is able to say we we are about first of all preaching we're about prayer we're about proclamation but I think the the kind of the magic happens whenever that is done in tandem with we are also about the poor we're about serving our community and kind of bringing word and deed together and I think something powerful can happen there where you know, the church has changed, but also people's lives are changed. You know, I think of the Council of Jerusalem that you read about in Acts, and, you know, they're arguing over essentially like um, boundary markers and discipleship, who's in, who's out, do you have to be circumcised, do you not have to be circumcised? Really important questions for them to wrestle through, theological and practical. Um, uh, you know, but then there's also just a line tucked in, is like, what, what we really want them to do is remember the poor. What we, what we want is have these discussions, be theological, be about preaching and discipleship and all that, but also remember the poor and that and that thread. So I think that's what we can learn, put those two things together. Absolutely agree with what Glenn was saying there. And I guess for the things that we can learn from the global church, sticking with something for the long term and beyond just being this is the latest trend that's cool to be seen to respond to. Um, uh, but this is going to take a long time to work towards the end of having to rely on emergency food. So being around for the long term, um, being comfortable working under the radar as well, I suppose, flows from that. And, the, you know, the news cycle and the policy cycle ebbs and flows. Um, and not necessarily wanting to be thanked for this 
hard to look for affirmation, but to just quietly get on with it, I think is something that we can definitely learn from examples of how the global church has showed up where there's been need. Um, that focus on empowering local people, uh, which seems to come to the forefront in terms of churches getting more of an understanding of that on a global basis, but what does it mean in your local neighbourhood? Because um, uh, that, that, that principle should still stand. I think mainstreaming how we respond in the local church as not something that's just a separate ministry, but that's very much a part of what we do. So actually talking about food bank and talking about poverty in Macrofelt or Coleraine or in Bangor uh, as a part of how you do church every week, it's not seen as something separate. And the last one, I suppose, was just in terms of always being theologically engaged about the issue. What's changing us? What's changing how we read the Bible? Uh, how does a verse like the poor will always be with you? How does that change? <laughs> does it mean that we'll always have poor people? Or does it mean that we should always be close to the poor? So I think always been willing to be challenged as well. Uh, great, Johnny. Uh, on that note, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in a second. Each episode, we'll take a short break from the conversation and take a spin around the world in two minutes. What are some of the stories behind the headlines, events that you might have missed, things that you can be praying for and looking up in your own time? So the world in two. We'll start in East Africa, where there's a hunger crisis, soon to be a full-blown famine, brought on by years of drought conditions and made worse by global events like the war in Ukraine and energy costs. The numbers are staggering, but across Kenya, Somalia, Ethiopia and South Sudan, as many as 150 million people are at risk of going hungry. And within that, some 20 million people are at risk of starvation. And yet this is not something that breaks through uh, onto our news cycles. Uh, over across the world to Haiti. Haiti is a country in grip of renewed gang violence. Uh, in the 10 years since the devastating earthquake, the country has lurched from crisis to crisis, really. Uh, now with neighbouring Dominican Republic deploying troops to the border to prevent a spillover of violence. Tearfund works with churches and partners in Haiti to see people and communities lift themselves out of poverty in a way that is sustainable and lasts. And all of that is threatened by violence because in an instant, violence can undo decades of development work in a community or a family. So let's pray for peace in Haiti. And our final stop then is the DR Congo. This massive country, uh, the size of Western Europe, has been beset by ethnic violence for decades, which in the east of the country has flared again in recent months. The ethnic tensions involved also can complicate the response of agencies like Tearfund in supporting those most impacted. In series one of the podcast, we chatted with Heb Davi, our country director in the DRC, and he spoke of the impact of that kind of violence on families and children for generations. In fact, Heb Davi will be in Northern Ireland in October. And if you stay tuned to our social media pages, you can stay up to date with where you can hear him speak. That was The World in Two. Now back to our conversation with Johnny and Glenn. Welcome back, Johnny. Part of your role with Trussell Trust is to advocate for fair and just policies uh, at local government level here in Northern Ireland and elsewhere, um, bringing the voice of the margins up to the table, uh, which is something that Tear Fund's passionate about doing at a global level. 
Uh, tell us a bit about the event you had uh, this past month in Stormont. Uh, yeah, we were taking part in an event at Stormont called uh, Crushed by the Cost of Living. Uh, which was organised by a range of civil society organisations here who wanted to highlight um, the cost of living is affecting everybody, but it's disproportionately affecting people who were already really struggling. So the aim of that event was to, I suppose, try and encourage our elected representatives locally to get Stormont and the executive back up and running to make the full use of their legislative powers to do as much as they can to just ease the pressure on people. How we did that was through a range of different people speaking. Most importantly, we were hearing directly from people from all walks of life, just in terms of how how they are really, really struggling right now. So the aim of that event was to say, here are the key things that Stormont can do around social security, around other departmental things that are very Stormont specific, uh, that need to happen to make sure that people can get through the winter. I think I heard you on the radio, or maybe one of your colleagues, lamenting the lack of MLAs who had signed up to attend the event. Um, that's obviously a challenge within that advocacy space. Are there other challenges that exist as you seek to speak out for those crushed by the cost of living crisis? Well, I think the challenge is there are some very Northern Ireland specific challenges. So while most of the policy levers in terms of social security and ensuring that social security ever folks that have to rely on that, and we all might have to do at some stage in our lives, that that at least matches the rate of inflation. Other challenges are just huge myths that are out there around like what it means to live in poverty. Um, and that's a difficult conversation because so many of the narratives, um, certainly since around 1996, 1997, have focused on um, this notion of hard-working families um, and that most people that are on benefits are in some way gaming or, or actually cheating the system. Half of people that rely on universal credit, for example, are in work. There's also going to, going to be a huge amount of people who have to rely on Social Security who just can't work <laughs> because they have caring responsibilities, they're too ill to work, or they're disabled. Yes, there's a narrative out there that unfortunately stigmatises people. Um, and as the church, we've tended to buy into that a wee bit um, in terms of our, our views of well, why people are coming to food banks and we make judgments about the decisions that they make uh, when actually it's it's incredibly costly um, and expensive to be poor. Everything costs more because you're always trying to think short term. How can I get to the end of the week? How can I get to the end of the month? So, so what our, our food banks are telling us is people who are in poverty are incredibly resourceful. They don't have to be told to budget better. Or do, because they're actually in, incredibly savvy with their budgets because they have to. So uh, while there are huge challenges at, at 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 policy level, there are huge challenges in terms of people's own views. Uh, and that's why uh, in terms of Trustful Trust strategy the end the need for food banks, we have three strands. First one is changing communities so that local communities and local people are best placed to know how to end the need for food banks. Um, changing minds is that piece I just talked about there around how can we create a movement of folks across the UK that says, actually, food banks aren't the answer here. Um, and a shared understanding of the drivers that make people have to use food banks. And then the other part of that then is the change in policy piece. Yeah, so while we want to change government policy to make sure that people have enough money in their pockets to make sure they can uh, they can buy the essentials themselves, we need to really challenge myths and, uh, and perceptions around poverty, which is a real, real challenge right now. Yeah. 
Thanks so much, Johnny. Glenn, some of those same myths and perception challenges exist when it comes to how we view those living in poverty globally. And then Tearfund also operates in this advocacy space. Uh, tell us a bit about what that looks like globally and what are some of the challenges for us? Yeah, so uh, Tearfund has a whole kind of department which is around advocacy and the degree of investment uh, that, that goes into that. And um, sometimes people can say, well, why is that Why is that important? Or not immediately see the connection. But I think as, as Tearfund um, learned, first of all, from being a humanitarian response organisation to being community development, to then say, well, look, we can't actually help end global poverty without addressing the causes of that and the drivers of that. Um, and so we'll have this whole area of work, which is around um, advocating globally, um, trying to influence uh, decision makers to make decisions that are good for the most vulnerable in their societies. And that is a global works so we do it in the UK. We do it um, also in other countries where we work. So it could be around uh, labour laws, could be around um, uh, things to do with waste uh, and different environmental policies and so on. Um, one of the things uh, in the UK is around climate finance. So the idea being that countries that have contributed the least to changing climate are actually suffering the worst effects and impacts of it. And so the, the world's richest countries have promised to, to give them money so that they would be able to make adaptations around the impacts of changing climate. Uh, and so <clears throat> They're being quite, you know, quite slow to get that um, off the ground and to get that money over. And do you structure that as loans, which further impoverishes these countries, or can you make it grants? Really, really complex stuff. But we're there to try to advocate and bring about change. And all that Johnny is saying on like a local level, on like a regional level in Northern Ireland, kind of plays out internationally in that richer countries tend to be able to set the rules for how these things work. And in many ways, the, the dice are kind of stacked against many other countries who are either being pushed further into poverty or just not being able to be raised up out of it. And so that's why the advocacy work is is so, so important. And uh, that's that's why we do it. Yeah, and certainly I know from chatting to colleagues across the world, I can think of a couple of examples in Africa in particular, where Tearfund has a, a really strong and trusted reputation and is able to access, I guess, those policy levers, Johnny, at the highest levels of government. And there's relationships with key people in very senior positions in government because there's a shared desire to to see their nation and communities within their nation lifted out of poverty and for the long term and in a sustainable way. Thanks, Glenn. Uh, let's finish with a bit of hope. I don't know about you guys, but the, the news cycle is a depressing cycle to be peddling uh, and at times it can drain us of hope and it can challenge our even that deeply christian understanding of of both near hope and far hope um so i guess the question is maybe in the world that's in flux what is it that gives you hope johnny i suppose first off i should have said this earlier <clears throat> i've been really encouraged by the response of churches in speaking up about the rising cost of living uh back whenever welfare reform was coming in here as a policy change in terms of very, very um, hard and very harsh changes to social security. It was churches in Northern Ireland that spoke up. And 
that contributed very, very strongly to us having some of the strongest mitigations against welfare reform here. And churches are starting to speak up again, which is really, really helpful, just in terms of how we move forward out of this crisis that we're in right now. Uh, what, I guess, gives me hope long term when I think about our food banks is, I guess it's thinking about it uh, just in terms of the kingdom of God, in terms of it's among us, but it's not quite fully fulfilled. And in terms of ending the need for food banks, um, you know, our desire to end the need for food banks can seem both an urgent hope and a very distant reality. That immediate pull of having to meet need right now and the seemingly remote kind of not yet of a Northern Ireland without the need for food banks. So I'm hopeful, thanks to our food banks and other providers of community support that can live in that tension of the now, but also think about the not yet and to work towards that. I like to think about it in the illustration of in the stormy seas, our food banks are having to lift people up into the boat and it's still very stormy and it's going to be stormy for a long time. Uh, but in that boat, there are people who are still saying, I can see land and there's still hope there and it's stormy right now, but we're going to get to a place where there's no need for food banks and that everyone has enough to live on. And I guess I'm really thankful for food banks that can see the balance of that, that meet the need and can still see that there's land. Mm -hmm. Brilliant. Glenn? Yeah, I love that. It's so encouraging to hear how you speak like that, John. It's absolutely brilliant. I think I think what gives me hope is that, um, you know, God has always been at work through kind of imperfect people. And, you know, we can look around and, you know, we can see issues maybe in our own congregation or in the church kind of at large and think, you know, it, it can be really difficult. But ultimately, God has promised to to be with his people and to to be at work through us and you see that locally but also see that globally um you know one of the places i visited um extremely poor community the church had this this word and deed thing um going and we saw there on a certain sunday it was 300 people getting confirmed in this church and you just go wow like god is at work and uh, he is not abandoned his people and there's challenges and there's tensions and it's now and it's not yet, but, but, it, but he's with us. And I think that that really gives me hope um, when you hear stories like that and see things like that and, and think, well, if that can happen there, that can happen here and really, really gives me hope. Thanks so much, gents. It's been a real pleasure to chat uh, this last half hour. I I'm sure, John, I, I can say that if, if there's a church leader or uh, somebody who lives in a community where they see need, they can reach out to you as somebody that could bounce ideas off and explore food banks and other things in their community. And obviously, from Tearfoot's perspective, if there's something here that's piqued your interest, then by all means, give me a shout on Twitter or an email. And until next time, God bless. <laughs>